If you're new today, it's okay. I'm going to kind of review quickly where we've been the past three weeks. Uh, We started out three weeks ago in Matthew 1. We continued in Matthew 1, and then we looked at Matthew 2. So three weeks in Matthew, and now, maybe a surprise, I'm going to go to the very end of Matthew's gospel, the Great Commission. And, And again, that may seem strange. Like, how did, you know, this is Christmas. Shouldn't we be in Luke or something in the beginning? No, we're going to go to the end of Matthew's gospel uh, that may seem counterintuitive, but hopefully it'll make sense here shortly. The title of my sermon <clears throat> is The King Affirmed, and the big idea, Worship and Proclaim the King. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew 28, <clears throat> and I'm going to read verses 16 to 20, and I'll give you a, a few moments to turn. <clears throat> Excuse me. All right, Matthew 28, 16 to 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Praise God for his word. Um, What happens? Let's start with this question. What happens when we compare Matthew chapters 1 and 2, which is the Christmas story, with Matthew 28, 16 to 20, the conclusion of Matthew's gospel, the Great Commission? This may be the greatest inclusio in all of Scripture. Now, what's an inclusio? Maybe he meant to say something else. No, inclusio. Not inclusion, but inclusio. An inclusio is a framing or bracketing device used in literature, especially in the Bible. It happens when the author begins either a paragraph or an entire book using language And then at the end of that section or the book, he uses the same language. And so Matthew begins by highlighting certain themes. And then he ends his gospel with those same themes. So imagine bookends or a sandwich. I love sandwiches. Sandwiches, you got a piece of bread. And what's on the bottom? Piece of bread. And then you got meat in the middle. What he's doing, what he does, he he brings up these themes. And we're going to look at five, and we've actually examined them already. So again, this is going to be a review of Matthew 1 and 2. And then what we see in the middle, okay, helps us to better make sense of these themes. These are huge themes. So how does Matthew begin, and how does he end his gospel? What themes are being emphasized? And I said, how many? We've got five we're going to look at. Okay, so in Matthew 1 and 2, and again, we've been three weeks in Matthew 1 and 2. We have mentioned, number one, the deity of Jesus. Jesus is God. Amen? He's God. Number two, we have the worship of Jesus. He's worshipped. Number three, we have emphasized God's mission to the nations, to the Gentiles. Number four, we have the mention of the Holy Spirit. And then number five, we have the promise of the presence of God. 
So what I want to do is quickly locate these themes in Matthew chapters 1 and 2, and then we're going to revisit them in Matthew 28, 16 to 20, and we're going to see this beautiful sandwich, an inclusio. But don't worry, we're going to look at what happens in the middle too, because what happens in the middle is massively important. What happens in the middle of the gospel? The cross. The cross. All right, so the first theme, number one, the deity of Jesus in Matthew 1 and 2. And again, for those who have not been here for the past three weeks, you'll appreciate this because this is going to be a great review, and then we'll look at the Great Commission. So, number one theme, we see at the beginning, we see it at the end. We'll look first at Matthew 1 and 2, the deity of Jesus. All that means is Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Matthew 121, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Now, in the Old Testament, Savior was a title used of God. Here, it applies to Jesus. Jesus is, he's God. Matthew one twenty three. that may be a little subtle, but Matthew one twenty three. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Nothing subtle there. Right? God with us. Who does that apply to? Jesus. Jesus is? He's God. And then Matthew 2.11, we see something really interesting. Matthew 2, verse 11. And going into the house, these are the wise men. They saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down, and they worshipped him. Okay? Worship is the proper response to who? To God. Jesus is worshipped, therefore Jesus is? He's God. All right, so... That's the deity of Jesus in Matthew 1 and 2. Now, let's go to the end. Matthew 28, 16 to 20. Same theme, the deity of Jesus. Matthew 28, 16 and 17. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. At this point, Jesus has died. He's been raised. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. Oh, what did they do? Okay, they worshipped him. So Matthew's gospel begins with the wise men worshipping Jesus, and it ends with the disciples doing the same thing, worshipping Jesus. Jesus is his God. And if that wasn't clear enough, Matthew 28, 18, Jesus came and said to them, all. Everybody say all. That's an encompassing word. All. Not some, not the majority, but all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Okay, so Jesus is worshipped. This was only appropriate when applied to God. And you know, what's interesting is Jesus doesn't refuse their worship. Right? In, in Acts, you know, when Paul is worshipped, he says, no, 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 that is not appropriate because I'm not God. Jesus does not refuse their worship because he is in fact who? He's God. Furthermore, Jesus is claiming to have all authority. This is a divine prerogative. Who has all authority? I don't. You don't. God does. Jesus claims to have all authority. Jesus is He's God. All right, so that's the first theme. Really important. Matthew begins and ends with that theme. Jesus is? Okay. Number two, and this is related, the worship of Jesus. The worship of Jesus. That's a big theme. Matthew's gospel begins with Jesus being worshipped. It ends with Jesus being worshipped. Let's look first at the beginning. Matthew 1 and 2. Matthew 2, 2. Where is he 
who has been born King of the Jews. For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And then Matthew 2.11, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. Right? We saw pipto and proskuneo. Those are two verbs that are used in association with God. They are worshiping, they're bowing down, they're giving their allegiance to Jesus because Jesus is God. They're worshiping him. All right, so same theme, the worship of Jesus. Now we're going to go to the end of the gospel, Matthew 28, 16 to 20. Matthew 28, 16 and 17. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they, they worshiped him. Number one, Jesus is God. Number two, Jesus is worshiped. Number three, third thing, <clears throat> God's mission to the nations. God's mission to the nations. Let's start with Matthew chapters 1 and 2. Matthew 1, 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, son of Abraham recalls God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, 3. And what was God's promise to Abraham? Abraham, through your offspring, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. From you is going to come one who's going to bring salvation to the, to the world. God's mission to the nations. Matthew 2, 1 to 2. Who are the first ones to come and worship Jesus? It's not Jews. It's Gentiles, these pagan kings. Let's read about it. Matthew 2, 1 and 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east most likely Arabia. These are not Jewish men. These are Gentiles. And they came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to do what? We've come to worship him. The nations come streaming to worship the Messiah as promised throughout the Old Testament. All right, God's mission to the nations in Matthew 28 Hopefully, you're already, you know it. What's the Great Commission? Go make disciples of all nations, right? So the Lord comes for the nations, and then he sends out his church to make disciples of all nations. God's mission to the nations. Let's just read it. Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. All right, so the fourth theme, number one, deity of Jesus. Number two, Jesus is worshiped. Number three, God's mission to the nations. Number four, again, these are the themes we're going to see at the beginning and the end of Matthew's gospel. Number four is the mention of the Holy Spirit. That's really significant. Matthew 1 and 2. Matthew 1.18, now the birth of Jesus took place in this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, behold, before they came together, she was found to be with child from Holy Spirit, who's active at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, the Holy Spirit. Matthew one twenty. But as he considered these things, Joseph, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the... And the Holy Spirit. Okay, so we have the mention of the Holy Spirit, Matthew 1 and 2, 
Let's go to the end. The mention of the Holy Spirit in Matthew 28. We see that in 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, again, if you weren't here last couple of weeks, let me just review. As we've seen already, the Holy Spirit would identify the Messiah. When does that happen in Matthew's Gospel? Yes, at the birth, but in chapter 3 at the, the baptism, right? When Jesus is baptized, not only does the Father speak, but the Holy Spirit descends, identifying Jesus as He's the King. But also in the Old Testament, especially in Isaiah, it's promised that the Spirit will be active. The Spirit will be the agent to bring about the new creation. It's interesting that the Spirit appears at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel integral to God's mission, His rescue mission. God came to rescue, amen? And who's at work? The Spirit. And then the Spirit reappears at the end of Matthew's Gospel as His mission continues through the the church. Alright, so the first theme, deity of Jesus. Jesus is God. Number two, Jesus is worshipped. Number three, God's mission to the Gentiles. Number four, the mention of the Holy Spirit. And number five, the promise of the presence of God. The promise of the presence of God. Matthew 1 and 2. Now, the reason these themes are important is because they're seen where? Throughout the Old Testament. And so as these themes appear in the Gospel of Matthew, what does it tell us about God? He promises to do something. He does it. God is Faithful. He's faithful. All right, number five, the promise of the presence of God in Matthew 1 and 2. Matthew 1, 23, behold, he's quoting Isaiah 7, 14, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So when Jesus came, literally God was with us, with his people. Let's go to the end, the promise of God's presence in Matthew 28, 16 and 20. How does the Great Commission end? Matthew 28, verse 20. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Okay, so why the repetition? Why begin with these themes? Why end with these themes? Why mention all five themes again? Well, Matthew is obviously reminding us of these things. These themes are central to Christianity. These are key points of doctrine. Let's summarize, and then we'll move into our passage, which is Matthew 28, 16 to 20. So, what we've seen, Jesus is divine, he's God. Jesus, because he's God, is to be what? Number two, worshipped. Jesus came for the world, amen? He came for the world, the nations. Jesus' mission was completed by the Holy Spirit and goes forward through his Spirit-filled people. God is with his people on mission, for that is why he came. In Jesus, God came to rescue us and to be with us. This same God who is with us empowers us by his presence to go and make him known to the world. Yes, this is the overarching theme of Matthew, but more specifically, this is the message of Christmas. The promise of God with us, The promise of rescue, 
the promise of the Holy Spirit, all brought to fulfillment through the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Savior King. All right, let's come back to our inclusio. What's an inclusio? It's kind of like a sandwich, bookends, a big bracket, right? So Matthew begins with these themes. He ends with these themes. Jesus is God. Jesus is to be worshipped. God's mission to the nations. The Holy Spirit. God with us. But we can't forget the middle. What makes a sandwich so good? I love bread. I do. I've told you guys about my obsession with the rolls at a certain place in Lufkin. My wife took me on my birthday. I went nuts. Bread is great, but again, a sandwich, what do you need? You need the middle, right? The meat and the condiments and the jalapenos, right? Anybody? Is that just me? Okay. I, I, I eat jalapenos on everything. Eggs. Yeah, that's good. Breakfast cereal, ice cream even. Let's get back. Yes, the inclusio is important because it tells us these major themes, right? They appear at the beginning and the end, but... We need the middle to make sense of these themes. And what takes place in the middle of Matthew's gospel? What is the climax of Matthew's gospel? The cross. The cross. I mean, we've talked about his rescue mission, but how did he rescue his people? What did Jesus come to do? He came to die. He had to die on the cross for sinners like us. That is our only hope, amen? Without the cross... And without the empty tomb, we have no hope. So what happens in the middle of Matthew's gospel is what enables his mission to go forward. I mean, Christmas is all about mission. We celebrate the Father sending the Son. And I think it's appropriate that we talk about our mission. I mean, we imitate God by being a people on mission. The Father sent the Son, and the Son sends us to go and make what? Disciples. Christmas points to the cross, and the cross calls for two major responses. And these are my two points this morning. Number one, worship the king. Number two, proclaim the king. Number one, worship the king. Number two, proclaim the king. So Matthew 1 and 2 announces the king, and then at the end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew 28, 16 to 20, affirms this announcement. How so? How does the end of Matthew's gospel affirm the announcement that Jesus is king? The king has been raised and therefore vindicated and therefore all his claims have been proven true. Amen? What enables Jesus to say all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me? Can a dead Messiah say that? Say it in Spanish. No. Only one who's been raised, who has all authority, all power, So what do we do with this king? I mean, Christmas is about the king. It's about God's mission, the Father sending the king. But what do we do with this king? Number one, we worship the king. Isn't that how the gospel begins? Isn't that why the wise men came to worship him? And then how does the gospel end? You got the disciples doing what? They're worshiping the king. Now, here's the question, though. Why worship the king? Why? Because of the cross. Amen? Because of the cross. Again, it's interesting. 
that in Matthew's Gospel, immediately after it's announced that Jesus came to save his people from their sins, that the wise men come to do what? They come to worship him. This good news calls for, calls for worship. The promise that Jesus had come to save his people from their sins immediately points us to the cross, where Jesus died in our place. His life for ours, the great and glorious work of substitution, the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ, making it eternally possible for sinners like us to be reconciled and brought into right relationship with God by trusting in, trusting in Jesus. You know, this is confirmed at the end of Matthew's gospel in Matthew 27, 51. What happens immediately after Jesus dies? It's remarkable. There's a great tear. So in Matthew 27, 51, it reads, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Through the death of Jesus, a way, in fact, the way, the only way, has been opened for sinners like us to be brought into fellowship with God. And this calls for what? I mean, think about this, guys. Jesus came to rescue us. In order to rescue us, he had to die. He died in our place at the cross. What is our appropriate response to that great and glorious work of rescue? Worship him, right? Um, one of my favorite books turned into a movie. Movie's never as great, but in, in this case, I really like the movie. It's The Count of Monte Cristo. Jim Caviezel, have you seen the movie? Have you read the book? Uh-oh, okay. Ooh. Well, let's try it. So, Guy gets thrown into prison. It's a really bad prison. He's meant to stay there for life. He escapes. Let's go to the movie. In the movie, he escapes the, the, the prisons on an island. And so he ends up in the water. He washes to shore on a nearby island. And there's some pirates. Arr, right? That was for the kids, not the parents. There's some pirates there. And they see this guy. They realize he must have just escaped this prison. Well, they make a deal. Hey, listen, we have a guy, a pirate, who's been untrue. We're going to kill him. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to let you guys fight. If Jacopo, he's the, the pirate that cheated pirates. You never cheat a pirate, especially if you're a pirate. Cheats the pirates, and then you got Edmund. Edmund Dantes is kind of the good guy in the movie. And the pirates say, hey, okay, Jacopo, if you beat Edmund, we'll spare your life. Uh, Edmund, if you beat Jacopo, we'll bring you on. You can be one of our pirates, and we'll let you live. So what happens? Edmund has the upper hand. He has his knife on Jacopo's throat, but he spares him. And he reasons with the captain, hey, spare his life, and then you'll have two more pirates instead of just one. And the pirate captain says, okay, good idea. Come on. Jacopo grabs Edmund and says, as of today, I'm your man. Meaning, I'm with you. You saved my life. You spared my life. Because of you, I get to live. And from now on, I'm yours. I'm your servant until I die. Sorry that took so long to explain. But, do you get it? Jesus has saved us. And what is the appropriate response? Jesus, I'm, I'm yours. I'm your, that's worship, right? Worship is saying, I'm yours. I give my allegiance to you every moment, every breath I commit to you. I am yours. Use me. Paul got this in Romans 12.1. Paul really got this. Paul says, now let me just quickly say, 
Romans is divided into two halves. Romans 1 to 11, Paul explains, expounds the good news. Jesus, life, death, and resurrection. And then in chapters 12 to 16, he says, okay, church, this is how we're to live because of what Christ has done. You understand? Here's what Christ has done, first half. Here's how we are to live as Christians because of what Christ has done, second half. And this is what Paul says to introduce the second half of Romans. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to what? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Worship is giving your whole selves to God because Jesus gave his whole life for you. Amen? All right. That's the first point. We worship the king. Amen? Number two, those who worship the king, those who have been transformed by the rescue mission of Jesus, what else do we do with the king? We worship him and we proclaim him. Number two, we proclaim the king. Now, how do we do that? How do we proclaim the king? Do do you feel like when you go out into your places of work, in your schools, in your neighborhoods, that the world is warmly accepting of this message? You can answer. No, of course not, right? The world is opposed to the gospel. So how do we proclaim the king to a world that is antagonistic to our message? And not just our message, but our king. Through the promise of his presence and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? What are those two themes that we saw in Matthew at the beginning and the end? The presence of the Spirit, the promise of his presence. We get that, amen? And we get it for mission. How did Jesus accomplish his mission? By the power of the Spirit. And anytime Jesus was tempted, what did he do? He went to the Father in prayer. Do we have access to the Spirit as Christians? Yes. Do we have the promise of his presence for mission? Say it again. Yes. I love this illustration. Imagine you're in the military and you've been asked by your general to go into enemy territory and it's dangerous. It's very dangerous, but you have a mission. You got to go. When the general says go, what do you do? You go. But the general is an experienced soldier. In fact, he's been over into into enemy territory multiple times. We'll call him a, a Green Beret Navy SEAL, both. How's that possible? I don't know. It just is in my story. Okay? He goes, hey, man, listen. I know I'm calling you to go, but I've been there. I know the safe way. I know the right way. It's going to be hard, but I'm going to be with you. I'm going to guide you. Is that better than just him saying, go, good luck, hope it works out, versus I've been there, I'm going with you? What's it more like for us as Christians? It's the second What does Jesus say at the end of the Great Commission? And behold, I'm with you what? Always to the end of the age. Christ the Lord is with us by the Holy Spirit, empowering us for mission. Okay, so what does proclaiming the king involve? We're going to end with this. The Great Commission, okay, there's, you can't get this wrong, by the way. You got to get it right. The main verb in the Great Commission is not go, it's Make disciples. That's the main verb. I'm going gonna, gonna to geek you out just for like two seconds. Followed by three participles. Now, participles are verbal adjectives, okay? So, make disciples, followed by 
three descriptors. Here's what making disciples entails. Going, baptizing, and teaching. What are we called to do? Make disciples. What does that involve? Going, baptizing, and teaching. Let me unpack these quickly. Going. Going. This brings to mind the image of a king sending out his messengers to announce good news. Maybe military victory, the spread of the empire. We, as followers of Jesus, are called by the king to what? To go. To go. To go is a call to movement. It's a call to kingdom expansion. The spread of the gospel in the book of Acts resembles the spread of an empire or kingdom. Movement was and is necessary to fulfill the universal mission, which is to make disciples of all what? Nations. Take the gospel to everyone. Go armed with the message of Jesus Christ. One commentator writes, going means crossing boundaries to make disciples. Going across the street. Going to dinner with an unbelieving friend. Going into the inner city. Going beyond one's comfort zone to make the gospel accessible to the lost. And here, friends, is where we imitate the king. Again, the gospel is all about going. Well, who came to us? Who left heaven for us? Who went? Jesus. And we imitate him when we do what? We go. And when the king says go, what do you do, friends? You go. So making disciples entails, number one, going. And again, we are messengers sent by the king. The king says go and tell the good news, so we go and tell the good news. Amen? And again, don't forget who's with us, the king. He's with us. All right, next we have baptizing. Now, baptizing is, is, do we have to get baptized to be saved? No. But what does baptism announce? That we are saved. Think of an initiation, right? Think of, this is how we go public. This is how we recognize who's in. It doesn't make us in. Trusting in Jesus brings us into the family of God, but baptism is how we publicly say to the church, I'm in. And we baptize into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Everybody say, into the name. He didn't say into the names, but into the name. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, When we baptize into the name, we are saying, I am giving my allegiance. I am committing to one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The picture painted by Jesus of discipleship, especially when we take into account the purpose of baptism, precludes one from embracing easy believism. Because those who trust in Jesus are giving their allegiance to God, the one true God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Baptism is saying, I'm in, I'm committed, and I want you to know that. Agreed? So, make disciples, go, baptize, teach. Now, teaching, does it ever end? No. This participle in the Greek is in the present tense, which denotes what kind of action? It's ongoing. It's continuous. This teaching is to continue throughout the life of the follower of Jesus. Teaching is mandatory. Without it, there can be no growth or maturity. 
Now, what's the content of this teaching? Jesus tells us all that he has commanded us. This assumes the full counsel of God, the Scriptures. To be a disciple is to respond to the good news of Jesus, to give one's allegiance to Jesus before the church, and to come under the Word of God with the, look around, the church. To be a disciple maker is to go to the lost, armed with the gospel, calling sinners to leave their sin behind and to trust in Jesus. It means to be in a church where those who repent and believe can come and join the church through baptism, publicly declaring their allegiance to Jesus. Furthermore, to be a disciple maker means to be a part of a church where you're gathering with other believers to hear the word taught for the purpose of ongoing growth in Christ's likeness. Oddly enough, if you pay attention to the Great Commission, the church is required for these things. We go together as the king's emissaries. Baptism is a church ordinance. It's a public announcement in the context of a local church. It's how the church recognizes its own, those who belong to the family of God. And teaching happens in the local church through the Lord's gifted pastor teachers when the church gathers every Lord's Day like today. Recall Ephesians 4, 11 to 13. And he gave the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We need the church, amen? We need the church. God's spirit-filled community to do the Great Commission. You know, the, the surprise of Christmas, one of the surprises, is that the people of God includes the nations. The His people in Matthew 121, He will save His people from their sins, certainly includes the Jewish people. And yet, the Gospel of Matthew ends with the King's commission to reach the the nations with the good news. His people will include the Gentiles, anyone who trusts in Jesus for salvation from sin. Now, why do we do this? Namely, why do we go make disciples? Why do we do this? Why? It goes back to our first point. The Great Commission is worship. It's how we spread the name and fame of our King. More believers equals more worshipers, equals more glory to God. Does that make sense? More believers equals more worshipers, equals more glory to God. Remember the message of Christmas. The king has come. God's people said, amen. The king is God. The king is to be worshipped. The king is to be proclaimed. And the king is with his people. Let me end with these questions and then I'll pray. How have you responded to the good news of Christmas? The king has come. The king is God. The king is to be worshipped. And that king, what was his great kingly work? Yes, he taught with authority. Yes, he did incredible miracles. But that king came to die. Right? That, that is the middle of our sandwich, our inclusio. The outside only makes sense in light of the inside. And what do we see in the middle of Matthew's gospel? The king going to the cross to pay our debt, as we were saying about earlier. 
to give his life for sinners like us. How have you responded to the king? Are you worshiping the king? Are you proclaiming the king? How do you continue to respond and what needs to change? I would plead with you today, if you have not already, get off the throne. If I'm king or you're king, what's the result? Death, certain death, eternal death. Life only works when Jesus is king. Amen? And eternal life is only found when Jesus is king. So turn from your sin. Trust in the one true king who lived, died, and rose again to save sinners like us. And when you do that, get with God's church and let's go out together and proclaim his name. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, it's so sweet to be reminded this morning from your word that you are a God of mission. Father, you sent the Son, and Jesus, you came. You were born a virgin. You were born to die. You lived the life we could not live, and you died the death we deserve at the cross, and you rose again victoriously, proving that you have all authority in heaven and on earth. And then... You call us, your church, to go and make disciples by proclaiming this good news. Father, I pray that we would imitate you, our God of mission, by going on mission, by expanding your kingdom, your rule, by telling others the good news that Jesus is Savior, Jesus is King, that we would call many to repent, turn from their sin, and trust in Jesus so that more unbelievers can become believers and thus worshipers and thus bring you more glory. Father, we exist for your glory. I pray that we'd realize that more and more and that all that we do would be for your glory. I pray for all our families today. I pray that we would remember why we celebrate this day. I pray for those who are homesick and suffering. Comfort them, O oh God. Give them your peace and your grace and your strength. And I pray that as we leave this place, we would remember our mission to make disciples. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.